You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Well, good morning. How are we? Yeah, good, good. Thank you for Jeff, those warm words and uh, the invitation to come. Um, it's a it's a privilege to be able to step in places like this where I mean it's clear the Lord's at work, and I've been kind of watching from afar. Uh, I came on like a random Wednesday night. It was pouring down rain. And two things I remember: I just remember the sincerity of the questions that many of you asked afterwards. And then like at like nine o'clock on a Wednesday, why in the world was Chick-fil-A on exit 22 packed? <laughs> like I, I was just trying to get back home, get into bed. And I was like, man, I'm, I'm in line for like 30 minutes. But um, no, since then, I, I, I'm really thankful for, for Jeff's friendship, for you guys sharing him with the convention. It's guys like that that really helped the convention be uh, strong across the state for the partnership of the gospel. Um, you know, convention life has its ups and downs like everything else, but at its, at its best, um, we're better together. We're better together. We can do more together than apart. And we pool together time, talent, and treasures for the sake of the gospel. Really, anything's possible. It, re- it really is. And so I, uh, I just want to encourage you to continue to fan that flame, not only for the convention, but even the greater Lumberton area as well, a partnership. Uh, I do. This is a bittersweet thing. This is probably the last time I'll preach as a North Carolina resident. I just accepted a role as a discipleship uh, role up in a church in Nashville, Tennessee. So we're about to pack all those kids up that Jeff just mentioned and and move. And if you know anything about moving, they say it's like the number one most stressful thing in somebody's life, more than losing a loved one. And I've done both. And I, I moving's tough. Um, and so if you think about it, the Lord will cause you. Uh, my name or our family's name to you, pray for us because uh, we're trying to get up there before August 6th for school and it's uh, time's, time's ticking for sure. But, uh, you know, it's providential. I think it's providential that I'm here. Whatever the Lord has put on my heart, I believe that it's going to be for, for you here. It's the word that you needed to hear. And so I hope you see the providence and the sovereignty of God in those kind of same ways that nothing happens by like just mere coincidence. And so tune your ears in to the Spirit's voice today as we open the Word and, and dig in, and, and I pray that He'll bear the fruit in keeping with repentance. But if you will, turn with me to 1 John, um, 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I know I saw in the thing, and Jeff and I have been talking, that you guys have actually been in 1 John, and you've looked at some authentic markers of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, which I think is good. John and Peter and these later letters are combating false teaching, and that's what they're doing. They're delineating. Hey, this is what a follower of Jesus looks like. What was cool is I, I had already said, this is the text I'm going to preach. And Jeff goes, well, that's interesting because that's actually the book we've been in. So I'm really thankful again that the Spirit just said, hey, f- season that with a little bit of this too from this book. Um, so I'm really, I'm really, I don't know, man. Sometimes it just blows your mind that you just like get to be a part of some stuff that God's doing. You know, and I hope you see that, that he just does things and like, <laughs> he don't need me. You know, he don't need me. But he chooses to use the likes of us to, be, to like help, help people along the journey. Um, so uh, 1 John 
chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, I'll give you just a brief testimony from a place called Buford, Georgia. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. I call it the Southern Fried Capital of Christianity, or Southern Fried Christianity, Capital of Southern Fried Christianity. And that's just a phrase we've come to uh, coin over the years of just uh, a place where many people went to church, but few actually followed Jesus. You know, and in a a series where kind of delineating between fans and followers, I would have been I would have been a a poster boy for a fan, but not a follower. Um, I had this kind of dual world going on. And, um, you know, the problem was I was addicted to the acceptance of others and I'd do whatever it took to get it. And so that'll, that's never a good place to be in. Let me just go ahead and put that out there. When, you're, when your identity is so shaky that it's um, really dependent upon what others think of you, that's a, that's a really bad place to be in. Um, and so that led me down a lot of dark paths. Even though I went to church and did all the stuff, led me down a lot of dark paths I never imagined being on. And I went off to college and my wife and I got married and about 11 months in, the Lord just exploded into our hearts and saved my wife and I at the same time, just kindness upon kindness. And uh, um, I, basically looking back, it looks like two things, as one pastor said, you know, I was so bad. I, I was coming to this realization that I was so bad Jesus had to die for me and so love was willing to. And that just melted my heart. An experience of grace at that point just set me on a trajectory, a different trajectory. I was in banking, as Jeff mentioned, and um, I saw like a couple of guys took me under their wing and just began to disciple me, teach me the word, teach me how to follow Jesus, taught me to really see the world differently. You know, church and Christianity was really like a sliver in this, uh, this life that I had, there was entity and work and marriage and, and sports and all that. And what they basically, what their discipleship, I mean, what the spirit did through them was he taught me like, that's a terrible way to look at your life. You can have those slivers, but Christianity colors all of it. There's no separation of, of that. Like, it's like C.S. Lewis said, it's like, um, I see, I, I, I see Christianity as I see things. I see the world by the sun. You know, it's not like you, you're not staring straight into the sun. Like, oh, there's the sun. There's, it's like the sun illumines everything else for you. When Jesus. And that's what happened and, and, and received the acceptance that I was seeking in all of you and every other person that I met. I received the acceptance that I was really looking for from God through Jesus. And what that did was it freed me up to actually become a servant of people instead of a taker. You know what I mean? If I don't need necessarily anything from you, then I can step into relationships and serve. Have I done that perfectly the last 18 years? No. Just call my wife. She'll tell you. But you see what I'm talking about of what happens when conversion takes place in the heart of somebody. Is that the Spirit of God takes up residence and begins to transform you to be more like Jesus. And that's the journey I'm on and hopefully many or all of you on. And if you just stumbled in here for the first time today and you're like, who is this guy and what is he talking about? Just hang in with me. Because I think the word today will speak to both you or somebody who's been walking with Jesus for a long time. I've traveled the state now for the better part of four years, and perhaps the most elusive thing that I see in the lives of others, whether Christian or not, and, and the thing that I feel like I fight for the most is joy. Everybody say joy. Not the fleeting kind that's dependent upon circumstances or you know, getting things or letting things go. Not that kind. I'm talking about true, lasting, abiding joy. That's the kind that's able to endure and even transcend sorrows. Everybody say joy. Anybody in here long to be full of joy? Yeah. 
Some of y'all be like, well, I see. Why you don't want joy? Look, if you want joy, you're in good company. A famed author and philosopher and professor C.S. Lewis once said, joy is the serious business of heaven. Joy is the serious business of heaven. Now, where in the world would he get that idea? 1 John chapter 1, let's look at these first four verses together. Hear the word of the Lord. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father. Everybody say with. You're going to need that word in a little bit. Put that on that shelf. Was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. Everybody say fellowship. You're going to need that one too. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy, or maybe some of your translations say your joy, may be complete. Joy is the serious business of heaven. And if Lewis is right, then the call to make disciples, which Jesus gave in the Great Commission, at the root level, is an invitation to others into true, lasting, abiding joy. It's what discipleship is. If it's not that, then, then something else is at play. And so let's pray and ask God that we would be able to see Jesus clearly so that joy would abound not only in our hearts, but in countless others that the Lord wants to minister to in and through you. Father, in the matchless name of Jesus, um, we come to you because none of us deserve to be in your presence apart from him. His name is the one who deserves an answered prayer. And so, Father, we, we recognize our place as creatures and you as creator. And we humbly submit ourselves to you now to the reading and the preaching of your word. And so I ask for help that comes only from your spirit so that we can see Jesus clearly and that we might be transformed from one image of glory to another. Shape us and make us more like him. Chisel away everything in us that doesn't look like Jesus. And give us, God, give us an indestructible joy that comes through seeing you, knowing you, and receiving the gift of grace that you've put forth in your Son. A, a joy that can weather every storm, every sorrow, every circumstance. And so, to these ends we pray, to these ends I preach, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start with joy. Look at me in verse 4. It says, and we are writing these things so that our joy or your joy may be complete. Now, I love John because he tells you throughout this book and even his gospel why he writes. Don't you love that kind of clarity? Say what you mean to say. You know, like John says what he means to say. You know, like here's why I'm writing. Why is he writing? He says, I'm writing so that your joy be complete. 
He's deeply concerned about their joy, which begs the question, why this word? Why didn't he say, we're writing so that your righteousness would be complete, or your obedience would be complete, or, or your love, or, or whatever the case may be? And the, and the reality is, is none of those things are mutually exclusive. We get this idea that, oh, you know, if you're, if you're really holy, then you can't be joyful. Well, that actually goes exactly against what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. It says, happy are the holy. Blessed are the holy. Blessed are the meek. He's saying that the people who are hungry for God, those are the happy ones. Those are the ones who are most joyful. And so he's, he's concerned about their joy, and he talks all throughout this letter about righteousness and holiness and obedience like y'all have been opening up in, the, in this series through 1 John. They're not mutually exclusive, which, which, which then leads me to ask this question. Have you ever stopped to consider how joyful God really is? Joyful. Is that the thought that comes into your mind when you think of God? You know, uh, A.W. Tozer once said, the thing that comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. That's the most important thing about you is what comes into your mind when you think about who God is. Does joy attend to that thought? Have you ever considered how much joy there is in heaven? Let me just read you a smattering of verses from the Scripture real quick. First Chronicles 16, 27 says this, Splendor and majesty are before Him. Strength and joy are in His place. Joy. Psalm sixteen eleven says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, O God, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures evermore. In those great parables in Luke 15 of lost coins and lost sheep and lost sons, Jesus says, just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Joy. Joy in heaven. And then in Matthew 25 with the parable of the talents, Jesus says, His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Listen to this. Enter into the joy of your master. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that God is the most joyful being in the universe. And therefore, wherever He is, there's fullness of joy. And so to be about God's business... It's necessary to start seeing joy as a key aspect of his character and mission. Otherwise, you'll, you'll, you'll enter into some sort of work. You, you know, you, I, oh, I got to go to church today. Oh, I guess we got to go to that outreach. Oh, I guess I got to go to that Bible study. Oh, I guess I got to go to that dinner. Oh, I need to guess I need to go serve that person over there. Oh, and we can serve and we can work for God. And it just the joy and the life that's meant to attend that just gets sucked out. And what ends up happening is, you're actually serving another God, not the one of Scripture, not the one who's revealed himself. There are other gods, by the way. The Bible makes that clear, too. They just ain't this guy. If serving God and joy doesn't attend to it, step back and examine. Have you considered how joyful God really is? Joy is the serious business of heaven. Now, most would agree that uh, the beloved Apostle John uh, 
wrote this letter. He's part of Jesus' inner three with Peter and his brother James. There was a close proximity with Jesus for a long time, for, for years now. And he wrote this late first century uh, to churches in Asia Minor. And he was writing because false teachers had come in to deny like a core tenet of the, the false teachers were illuminating was that, you know, Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. Like God, God didn't actually become a person. Now, in our day, it's actually more common to, to deny the opposite, that Jesus wasn't really God, that he was just a man, that he was just a person. That's a little more common in our day. But the reality is, is there's always this attack on just core basic tenets of the faith. And just know that that's a play by the enemies of God. That's always a play. It's always in play until Jesus returns. So just be aware of that. It's what he's going to go on to say. Test the spirits. Peter's going to say, watch out for false teachers. We're living in that time. Watch out for false teachers. Why? Because it's a play by the enemy to help distort in your mind and in your heart who God is because the enemies of God know that if he can get you, if they can get you to follow them, then they can rule the world through you. Genesis 1, God co-rules the world through humans. There's a rival voice that comes in Genesis 3 that says, oh, I see. So what voice you listen to really governs you, and now you see the problem we're in, right? So John's writing to them saying, look, 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 guys, guys, so calm. You, need to, you need to calm down, you know? need to calm down. Taylor Swift was just picking up on that. Just need to calm down. Just need to calm down. I'm already trying out my Nashville jokes, see? Denying core tenets of the faith will rob you of joy. It's all meant to be put together. You start unraveling one piece and the whole thing falls apart. This is a really popular move in our culture right now, deconversion. You pull out one string and it's like, well, everything else falls apart. Let's just receive God for what he, how, he's reve- how He's revealed Himself. And so if joy is the serious business of heaven, John starts this letter by stating that in a real and tangible way, heaven has come to earth. Heaven has come to earth. Verse 1, he says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we've seen with our eyes, looked upon, touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we've seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you, I love how he qualifies right here. The eternal life. We've been talking about this life. It's actually an eternal life, like existed forever. That life that was with the Father, it was revealed to us. It was made manifest to us. Heaven has come to earth, John has said. Enjoy the serious business of heaven. John says, heaven has come to earth. And I love how he's just going after the false teachers right here up front. He says, look, they're saying that... Jesus isn't, didn't come in the flesh. We say what it is. You see how it's just like putting forth a different story? Every, key, so key aspect of mission, listen, everybody lives by faith. Every single person lives by faith. If anybody tries to pigeonhole and say, y'all live by faith, we live by facts or science or something like that. Everybody lives by a story. You believe some story to be true about the world, and your faith is in that story, and it animates your life. Every single person that's ever walked the face of the earth lives by faith in some story. And so they're like, John's saying, they're saying that it's not. 
I'm telling you, this is what the Bible says. This is the story I'm believing, that there was a life that's existed eternally, and it's actually become a person. He just starts right there. It was made manifest to us. We've seen it. We've testified to it, and we proclaim it to you. These are fundamentals of the faith. He's sticking to it. Um, and if there was ever a letter for our day and age, it's this one. A recall of the fundamentals of the faith, things of that that Jesus was a life of light, a life of love. Um, these are the fundamentals that John's picking up on and he's expanding upon because he wants you and me to experience joy. And that is the serious business of heaven. But here's the kicker. He doesn't want you just to know this as like a, like a, like a date. You know, World War II happened in this time. Pass that test, right? That's not the kind of knowledge that he's wanting you to have about the fact that joy is a serious business of heaven and that heaven has come to earth. He wants you to have the kind of knowledge of how you learn how to wash dishes. Now, how many of y'all's mamas sat you down and said, all right, let me give you this lecture on what a dish is. See, it's made of this ceramic. And, and there's this sponge. There's this sponge, and there's this thing called soap. And, and you got this, like, two-hour lecture with some facts. How many of y'all learn how to wash dishes that way? None of them. How'd you learn how to wash dishes? Hey, come on up here. Come on up here beside Mama. Let me show you how this is done. It's an experiential knowledge. It's discipleship. You got discipled into dishwashing. I'm trying to teach my kids that right now because they just somehow like to leave them in the sink sometimes. I'm like, these things don't magically wash themselves. John's wanting you to understand that joy is the serious business of heaven and that heaven's come to earth in that kind of knowledge, an experiential knowledge. And he says in verse 3 that fellowship, the withness, the come alongsideness is the key to this kind of joy. Look at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship, there's our word, with us. That you may have fellowship with us. John says, look, I'm writing you so that you can have joy, but I'm proclaiming this to you so that you can have fellowship with us. I'm inviting you into fellowship with us. We're experiencing something, and we want you to experience it with us. We want you to experience it with us. Why? Because think about this, and you know this to be true. Joy and fellowship go hand in hand. Joy and fellowship go hand in hand. You know, I, I love growing food in the backyard. And uh, when my father was still alive, one of the things I loved, I knew he grew up on a farm, and so those things are like deep in his heart. So like whenever something cool would happen, I'd be like, I'd take a picture of all these tomatoes we just harvested. Like, Dad, check this out. He's like, man, that's awesome, you know. Or like my neighbor, same thing. I can't eat all them tomatoes. I can't eat all that okra. So what do you do? Man, I'm going to go share that. I'm going to go share this joy with other people. Go knock on, hey, y'all want some okra? You don't need okra. What's wrong with you? You know, something's wrong with you. <laughs> you know, zucchini, squash, cucumbers. You want to share that joy with other people. You want to share that with others. You know, you win a game. You're the first person you want to call. Hey, guess what? We won. You want to share that joy. Fellowship and joy go hand in hand. And so John's saying, I want you to have joy. And he backtracks and says, I'm proclaiming something to you so that you have fellowship with us so that your joy be complete. And mine too. John's saying our joy be complete. You share in it, man, my joy gets complete. 
So let's dig into that word fellowship just a little bit more, though. When you hear that word, what comes to mind? What comes to mind when you hear the word fellowship? If you're like anything like me growing up, when I heard the word fellowship, it was like fellowship hall, which meant you was going to eat a bunch of country cooking. A lot of casseroles, right? Fellowship around some casseroles. I know I heard an amen back there. I feel that. I feel that deep in my soul. Fellowship, football, fellowship hall, maybe like some sort of program or something, the fellowship program or, or whatever the case may be. But that's, that was about the extent of what my understanding of fellowship was until I actually started digging into this. And I saw that it was actually a lot, a lot deeper. So I'm going to nerd out on you real quick. Just listen, let's nerd out in the Bible. Let's just self-proclaim Bible nerds. Everybody raise your hand and say, let's just do this. Let's just do this. Let's just do this. Let's go nerd out on the Bible. All right? Because there's such good truth here. All right. So 20 times in the New Testament, this word fellowship is mentioned. And the word is, is you know, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, New Testament written in Greek. The word's koinonia. Everybody say koinonia. Every now and then you'll have like communities pop up and be like the koinonia house or koinonia this or whatever. Koinonia uh, is the word that's often translated fellowship. And it's used 20 times in the New Testament. And it's, and it's translated about four different ways. And it, we're going to color in a picture. You remember those like, Color one's red, color two's yellow, color three's blue. We're going to color in this picture to get a fuller sense of what the picture of fellowship really is. So one way it's translated is like in Romans 15, 26, when Paul's talking to the Romans and he's saying, the churches in Macedonia and Achaia have contributed to the needs of the poor in Jerusalem. The word contributed is koinonia. It's a sacrificial contribution to help others. All right. Another way that it's translated is like in Hebrews 13, 16, when the author of Hebrews says, always remember to do good, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. Such koinonia, God is pleased. This sacrificial giving, this sacrificial love for others is a way that koinonia, that fellowship is translated. All right. Third way, Philippians 1, 5, Paul's telling the Philippians, he's saying, look, of all the churches, you have participated with me, you have partnered with me, you have koinoniaed with me in the advance of the gospel. So they've contributed to the needs of the apostles as they've gone out to spread the gospel. They've, they've sacrificially given, they've sacrificially ministered to, prayed for, they've partnered with them to spread the gospel. They've, they've been a part of something much bigger than themselves. This is another way the word fellowship is translated. And then the typical way is, is fellowship, like in Acts chapter 2, right after Pentecost and the Holy Spirit falls, it says that they were devoted to the prayers and the breaking of bread and the fellowship. They were devoted to this common life together, that they were with one another, and they were living this way that Jesus has given them. So you put all this together, and even just from a cursory word study of the word fellowship, what you see is a sacrificial participation in a common life of money and time and things. And it's something bigger. It's, it's for a purpose bigger than your own personal needs. It's to serve others. Many of those instances, if you'll just look around the context, what you'll find is the words joy or rejoicing or rejoice or something like that. You'll find joy connected to fellowship. I even heard it, somebody leaving the first service, like, man, I love this church. I mean, like, I was like, man, that's the best sermon I heard today. This joker walked out. He's like, man, I love this church. He just had all this joy. He's like, man, the fellowship is so good. And and he, was, and he was actually using some of the things we just said. I got fired up about that. That's how it should be, right? 
But there's this fellowship, there's this sacrificial participation in a common life on a common mission for the glory of God. Fellowship. And you've experienced this in fragmented, fleeting ways. You know, with your sports teams, maybe you set a common goal and you, and you achieved it. And you're like, yeah, we did this. And then it's fleeting because you got to have another season, you know. Or maybe like a team at work, you, go, you set these goals and you hit the sales numbers and you're like, we did it, guys. And then your boss comes in and is like, we need to increase that 25,000% for next year. And you're like, oh my gosh, there's my joy. You just robbed it, you know. <laughs> but you've experienced it and, and what John is doing is he's grounding this letter in something so much more profound than any of those experiences you've tasted. Now, interestingly, the word for fellowship here is extremely rare in the Old Testament, and it only talks about, really, partnership between humans, and that rarely ends well in the Old Testament. And it never talks about fellowship between God and men. God and humans. And John's given us some clues to joy in this letter. He says, look, heaven's come to earth and fellowship with one another is critical for joy. But that's not all he says. Look at the second part of verse 3. He says, look, we're proclaiming this life to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. Jesus Christ. Something new has happened post-Pentecost, post the coming of the Holy Spirit. Something that wasn't experienced prior to the coming death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus and the sending of the Spirit. Something radically new is at play. John saying, I'm proclaiming the life of Jesus to you so that you have fellowship with us. And indeed, do you hear the certainty of that? Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus. That's amazing. John's not just wanting us to know facts about God. Well, He's holy and He's, a, you know, he's righteous and He's gracious and He's merciful. Praise God. He's wanting you to be melted with an intimacy with Him. Where do you get that, Josh? It's in the text. Let's keep looking. Why is God the most joyful being in the universe? I think the key is in verse 2. In verse 3, when it says, The eternal life was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And he says, indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. Key word is with. Now, in the New Testament, there's two different ways to use the word with. There's a sense right now that I'm with y'all. I'm from Buford, you know, y'all. Hey, y'all. I'll try that out in Nashville. Surely they say y'all up there, right? I'm with y'all. We're in proximate location. If we were to go to a Georgia football game, go dogs. If we were to go to a Georgia football game, we would be with 95,000 other people. In one sense, we're with everybody else in Lumberton right now. We're with y'all. It's a term of, of, of proximity. 
That's one way to use the word with in the New Testament. But there's another word in Greek that is, is used for the word with. And it's a little different kind of with. It's more like when it's bedtime at the Reed house and I lean over to the kids and I kiss them on the forehead and I say, I love you. And most of all, Jesus loves you. And we're face to face. And when my six-year-old, when I used to have a big beard and my six-year-old, he'd reach up with his little hands and he'd grab that beard and he'd go, you know, it feels terrible. It just hurts so bad. You know? And he just scratched. He said, Daddy, your beard is so scratchy. You know? And it's like moments like that you don't ever want to end. Because there's just a joy of being with one another. And it's right. And it's good. It's not mere proximity. It's a withness that connotes intimacy. A safety of relationship. Now, which one do you think John's using in this passage? Proximity or intimacy? It's intimacy. This is the fundamental difference between Christianity and every other religion in the world. Every other lower G, lowercase g God is dependent upon someone else relationally. Not the God of the Bible. He is an eternal community within himself, Father, Son, and Spirit, so that he's not dependent upon anything. And there's a joy that he has experienced for all eternity, John says. The Father loving the Son and the Son loving the Father and the Spirit carrying that love back and forth to one another so that when you're a lover by nature, what do you want to do? You want to share. And so the creation project was an intentional desire of God to share that sacrificial, self-giving love with his creation. That's what Jesus came for us to invite us into that. <laughs> Withness. Could you imagine a world where everybody gives and nobody takes? Who goes without at that point? I hope you're feeling this in your soul for what you were created for. The kind of life we were made to live and made for and one that's been corrupted by sin and rival voices who want your authority. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, said, um, when, people, when most people think of God, two caricatures come to mind. Either he's this senile old grandpa who lets you get away with whatever you want, or divine policeman ready to zap you at every bad thing you do. Neither of those are biblical. He's full of justice and full of mercy. Which at first would seem like a paradox, right? How can you be both fully just and fully merciful? Well, the answer to that question is answered 
in Hebrews 12. And it's going to help us tie up this last part. If Jesus came to help us experience that kind of fellowship, and that's what he's extended to us, the question's how? Hebrews 12 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. One of the quickest ways to jump off this, to attempt to jump off this race, is to endure hardship. That's what the people of Hebrews were, they were enduring hardship, and they're like, it's too hard, I don't really want to follow, follow Jesus no more. And so the author is exhorting them to say, actually look to Jesus. Let's endure this race set before us. Look to him, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Look at this. He says, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now I just told you, John's just told us, that the eternal life has existed forever. The Father and the Son has always experienced eternal joy. Why would the author of Hebrews say that there's joy set before him then? Wouldn't it be like all the joy he's always had behind him and around him? Wouldn't it be that kind of joy? What, what could have possibly made that kind of joy even better? And uh, it's similar to June 22nd, 2002, when I stood in a very similar place, and I saw those doors open up in the back, and my wife, radiant in all her beauty, steps through those doors. I had asked her to marry me. I had asked her to come share in my joy. And she said, yes, praise God. And... Uh, what I was inviting her into was a life of sharing that joy. And it's been a crazy ride. 19 years and counting, praise God. But the joy that, that we have together has been able to endure sorrows, endure things like lost parents and moves because there's something underneath just our proximity with one another. There's an intimacy, not just with one another, but with the God who made us. And when Jesus was hanging on that cross, it says he was enduring that, despising the shame. Why? For the joy set before him. What's the joy set before him? It's the church. It's, it's all who trust in him. It's his bride. And he's saying, I've experienced all this forever, and you can't get to it on your own because of sin. So I'm going to endure this so that you can actually experience that for all eternity. How can God be merciful and just? He poured out the punishment of our sin on his son as an expression of the greatest act of love ever in the history of the world. Fully just, fully loving. Why? So we can experience the eternal joy that he's experienced. That's the gospel. And here's how you access it. You got to get better. That's what the Bible says, right? Of course not. The Bible says, repent, confess your sin, 
and then received that gift because that's exactly what it is. Is this a gift? Repent of your sin, receive that gift through faith, and check it. When you do that, that's the most joyful thing you'll ever experience in your entire life. But how did we say joy is expanded? You share it with others. See, God has reserved like measures of joy that can only be experienced when you give stuff away. It's brilliant, actually. It's really brilliant. Not only is God the most joyful being in the universe, he's the smartest, too. (laughs) Wisest. Joy is a serious business of heaven. And heaven has come to earth, first in the person and work of Jesus. But as Revelation tells us, it's going to fully come. Heaven's going to come to earth and purify everything here so that all who trust in him will get to experience the fullness of joy with him forever. And so just a couple of ways of application, and then we're going to invite the uh, praise team to come up and lead, lead us in a last song. We're going to give you space to respond. Because if it doesn't hit your heart, your mind, and your hands, then I haven't done my job. Let the Spirit do that. First, I encourage you to confess your sin. John actually says right after this passage that if we say you have no sin, you're a liar. And then you can't have fellowship with him. There's that word again. So you can't have fellowship with the one who is light if you're still dwelling in darkness. That's hypocrisy. That's lying. Here's the beauty of that, though, he says. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's really good news. Guess what? Then you can have fellowship. (laughs) Um, Secondly, Let me encourage you to meditate on the joy of God. Meditate on the joy of God. Again, I don't know if you're the senile old grandpa camp or the divine policeman camp, but neither are full of joy. Let me encourage you to grab this passage and some of those other ones that I mentioned. Psalm 16, I'm trying to memorize Psalm 16 right now. That's a good one to kind of grasp the joy of God. Meditate on the joy of God, that he's the most joyful being in the universe, what might that do to your heart and your soul and your dailiness, your daily living? What might it do to the life of this church if we were to meditate on the love of God daily, weekly, monthly, yearly? I think, I think it might transform some things. I know it is done in my heart. And lastly, I want to encourage you, whether you're already doing this, I want to just pour gas on that, or if you, this is where the point of conviction lies with you today. Extend the fellowship that you have with Jesus to others. Like, you want more joy? Like, some, a lot of y'all raise your hand. I'm, I'm giving you some keys to joy here. Extend it to others. There are a few things more joyful than watching somebody cross from death to life. <laughs> and start being transformed by Jesus. Like my neighbor Andrew. Watching him being transformed by Jesus is one of the greatest joys I've ever experienced in my life. And it's just like, it's like that joy that keeps growing. Like it don't stop. You know, as long as he keeps growing, my joy keeps growing.
So if you notice on verse 4, though, he says that um, we're writing these things so that our joy, your joy, our joy may be complete. You see that condition? There's a condition attached to that. What's the condition? Our willingness to receive it, to receive both the message, the man, the, the man Jesus, the message, and the mission. Joy is reserved for those who receive Jesus, who receive the message, and who receive the mission. But as you labor, if you take up that as your life, for the rest of your life, you're going to hear what Jesus said in Matthew 25. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been good with a little. Enter into the joy of your master. Let's pray. I invite the worship team to come and lead us in a last song. So, Lord, do what you do. Transform us now. Where conviction sets, give us grace to repent. Where assurance is needed, give us grace to remember that our salvation isn't dependent upon us. We can't earn it, which means we can't lose it. We're either born again or we ain't. And so, God, let conviction rest where it needs to rest. And trust and faith that, Jesus, you have come and you have won for us a life. That you've invited us into the greatest fellowship hall of all time. <laughs> the fellowship that you've had with your Father through your Spirit for all eternity. Words simply can't suffice for our gratitude. And so we offer you our lives in response. And Lord, I pray that right now you'd recall a person or two to each one of our hearts and minds who's far from you, but close to us, that, that has fellowship with us in some respect, but Lord, that we long to see have fellowship with you, to deepen our fellowship with them as we experience fellowship with you. So God, I pray that you transform our minds, our hearts, and our hands now and we might bear witness to the truth of who you are and what you're doing in this world. Thank you, God, for the kindness you've shown us in Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.